0: Welcome to the Northern Business Podcast. Each week we talk to people active in business and the economy about the big issues driving growth in the north of England and we're sponsored by Virtue Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers. You can check out its website at virtuemotors.com. I'm Graeme Robb, owner of Recognition PR. We help scores of businesses promote their products and services. Some are featured on this podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, today uh, we're going to be talking in the studio about the uh, Autumn Statement and we've got uh, Carl Pemberton from Active Chartered Financial Planners we've got Pamela uh, Petty from Enterprising is that
1: the name? Entrepreneising.
0: But we've got the logo beneath <laughs> you Nick's got <laughs> it right uh, and you help small businesses don't you mentor yes. and coach small yes. businesses Yes. and we've got as our sponsor today because it's an important program we've got Robert Forrester on CEO of Virtue Motors PLC now Robert you own a large business you run a large business so your shareholders own it and uh, it's got thousands of staff and billions in turnover and lots of locations around the country so really this is an autumn statement that should have been targeted at you because the government wants growth did it help you in any way
2: i think it most certainly wasn't targeted at large businesses to be honest i think there was very little for large businesses in the in the autumn statement Uh, i think it was a political statement a bit linked, you know, almost like the national earning wage announcement yesterday, there's quite a bit in there for small businesses, but I think there was a I think there was very little for for large British businesses which employ, you know, as you say, millions of people.
0: So if we look at your business and the kind of things that you would be spending money on if you had a more benign environment, what opportunities could have been missed by doing what the government's done today?
2: Well I think the role of business is clearly to invest to raise productivity, to employ people and provide them with opportunities. And to invest, you need a stable business environment, a stable regulatory environment. And this government has pretty well done nothing on, on those two things. We've got a, a regulatory environment in, on, in flux around the transition to electric vehicles. And we've now got a government that has a debt equaling 98% of GDP. Uh, spending billions on interest and have now got inflation and interest rate hikes. So we need stability and we need some benign economic environment in which people can make decisions and and grow. And I'm af- I'm afraid that I think business is being taken for granted, largely. And we're seen as a cash cow that could be pillaged uh, to fund
0: a very large state. That's old Churchill quote. You and I were talking about it. What was it? Uh, Business, Churchill said, business shouldn't be a cow to be milked or a tiger to be caged, but a strong horse pulling the cart of enterprise.
2: Yeah, and what we've got is British business pretty well overregulated, overtaxed and overcosted.
0: So th- there were some things that uh, the government said would help. Uh, one of them is full expensing of, uh, of investments. So if you were buying on, I mean, I know you're putting solar panels on or you're refitting a workshop, you'll be allowed to claim the costs against your profits, uh, against your tax. Uh, in, by, by offsetting them against your profits. Is that not something that will help you? Well, in fairness, we always could do that.
2: Uh, I think this is a bit of a misnomer, this one. What it does is it brings forward the cash benefit of the uh, expense. you you get it much earlier in cash than you would have done. We were always going to get, through capital allowances, that money. So I, I just think it's a timing issue, and I, and I suspect there's very few people going to do a lot more capital expenditure as a consequence of that, because the pure economics really don't change that much,
0: and of course uh, the depreciation—you get hit with the depreciation later, don't you? Well,
2: that's right. I mean, so it's an—it's an interesting one. It's not an overly negative thing, but we won't be going right. We got—we'll spend thirty million pounds on capital expenditure this year. It's not a small sum of money, but we certainly will really won't be thinking, "Oh, we must do it now," you know, to get this extra tax allowance.
0: Right, let's go round the table. We'll come back to you, and we'll keep uh, ch- people chip in. But uh, Rob was talking about borrowing. Borrowing is very important because the cost of the government's borrowing can drive up ours and look at inflation as well. He talked about the total debt, uh, quite rightly, uh, high nineties of GDP. But the amount that the government is now going to borrow year by year, as a percentage of GDP, is coming in at four and a half percent this year, and now it's going to go down to. S- one point six percent. So the borrowing for the current account does seem to be under control. Carl, what's your view on how the government borrowing uh, affects the economy?
3: I think it, it is a double edged sword, isn't it? Because we we need to invest, and I always think there's two ways of looking at borrowing. Um, it's uh, is it an investment which you tend to get a return on, or is it a cost out there? So if you're borrowing as a cost outlay, you tend to not get that return. If it's an investment, you do tend to get a return. So I think when we borrow money, it should be focused more on investment, actually on things that are going to produce a return in the future rather than it just being a capital outlay. And I think if borrowing is done for that future growth or future opportunity, I don't see much of an issue about it. I think when borrowing is done just to paper over cracks, and it doesn't actually ever solve a problem, then it is a pure cost, there's no economic benefit, and that's when it can get out of hand. So there, there isn't a straightforward answer on it, but I think if it's focused in the right area, I don't see borrowing as an issue. But as uh, as we've alluded to in the past, we've got rising interest rates, the cost of borrowing is going up, and I think we've just always got to keep one eye on the fact that uh, you know it is gonna pay off in the long run. Because these sort of decisions can't be short term. And I think governments sometimes make too many short term decisions rather than long term. And one of the big long term decisions is to tackle inflation
0: first. That was a priority, a strategic decision Sunak took when he became prime minister last year. Now, as a professional financial advisor wanting to help your customers to beat inflation, it must be easier if inflation's lower and more important because it is a tax on your savings Mm -hmm. in the end.
3: Yeah, and, it, and again, it's, it's, inflation is a really hard thing to get your head around because people think inflation is coming down. That means costs are getting cheaper. They don't. It's just the rate that things are going up is getting, is getting slower. Um, and ultimately, as horrible as it sounds, to get inflation under control, we need to give people less money in their pocket to spend so they're not going out, unfortunately, and buying cars and holidays and things like that. That is how you get inflation under control. Now, nobody likes to feel worse off. Nobody wants less money in their pocket than they did last week or last year. But that is the way you've got to get inflation down. And we've got to go through this period of hardship and we've got to the bumps at the bottom before we can start coming back out the other side and I, I feel as though we're in that period at the moment. Pamela, you're advising lots of small businesses and uh, there are there are
0: some double-edged swords in this, this this statement today for small business. On the positive side, uh, the stamp. We've paid our stamp. Who here has paid a stamp? I've paid <laughs> yeah, the stamp. Paid We've stamp. paid your stamp. The National Insurance Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, anyone watching who's self-employed has paid the stamp and none of our staff know what it is. Yeah. But that's gone, yeah. so that's good. And there's a bit of a, a help on, on national insurance. So if, if someone earns the average national wage on national insurance, they don't just get the national insurance cut, they have a little reform because they're so self-employed and they'll get another couple of hundred quid. Yeah. Um. So that's a positive.
1: Yeah, it's a positive. Um. But I, I think that they are all sort of small things, and I think going back to the investment point on if we if if any of us what get some extra money loan some money then if we don't invest it wisely and actually improve what we're doing, and I think that's essentially what we haven't done. we haven't improved productivity so if if the country's not getting better at what it does then we're never going to get out of mm. this circle. We just continually need more money coming in, um, paper over the cracks, to pay people, to do all of these things. So, yeah, it's a nice little... <laughs>
0: all right. Well, I'm but... to, well, one of the positives, and I'm going to pull pull some more negatives from the point of view of business. The other positive, particularly for smaller businesses, you know, if you happen to have a sister running a cafe, which I think <laughs> you do. <laughs> yes,
1: yes, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, business rates are going to be... Uh, frozen effectively there's a there's a there's not going to be a worry about business rates going up again because there's a special incentive for hospitality businesses yeah
1: yeah yeah i think you know small businesses particularly hospitality um if I i think that it doesn't cost much out of the whole budget to be able to help these businesses actually just you know keep going forward that said most of hospitality are on minimum wage, yeah. which means that, you know, it feels a little bit like they've been given in one hand and taken away from the other. And, you know, if they've got, you know, if cactus have to put their prices up, um, you know, does it mean less people going in? You know, it's, it's it, it is a tricky balance for small businesses to... You know sort of
0: now I've found the the area of agreement between you and Robert there's probably lots, but this <laughs> we are a business program, so we we, lo- we want people to earn money, and we've got a social conscience. everyone around here has a social conscience, but there are, I have only had calls from my business contract contacts today complaining about the minimum wage going up mm. because it went up by so much more than people were expecting now um, Robert will come to in a minute on this, but practically. That is a hard thing for a small firm, it, it, isn't it? It, it,
1: ma- it makes a huge a difference. I mean, for for businesses like EBAC as well, it's probably you know a, a small manufacturing business, smallish, um, at two hundred thousand pound a year. That's going to actually cost that business. Mm. Without actually what what back, what you know, what do I get for that? Um, and a co- business should be looking at ways to make themselves more productive, and um, so that they can afford to do those things. But kind of when it's forced. Out there, you know, it just it's it's a tricky. It's, well, I'm going to bring tricky. Robert
0: in here, and I'm going to take, play the devil's advocate. Now, the <laughs> low, the minimum wage or living wage is set by the Low Pay Commission, and the explanation of it has been that the UN define low wages as wages that are below two thirds of average wages, and now they've set the living wage at two thirds of the average age, wage in Britain. So that's the formula they used. But as employers, people are looking at what the cost of living is, aren't they, and what the, what yes. they can afford. Yeah. Robert, open open goal for you to say your piece on this. Uh, well, I never voted for the UN, so I don't really <laughs> see what that, what the relevance of that
2: is. But we may have voted, but, you know, the, the answer is who do you want to control the economy? Do you want the government to control the economy? Do you want the government to set wages, which is actually what's happening more and more, because more and more people are now getting into that national minimum wage, Um, or do you want the private sector and the market to do it? It's a bit like, who do you want to make all this investment? Do you want the government to make investment? And let's be honest, they're not very good at it. Or do you want private sector who's next on the line and there's a profit motive to make investment? We seem to be at a little bit of a crossroads here as a country where who is in control? Is it the government or is it individuals and private enterprise? And I have to say, I feel I'm a little bit on the losing side.
0: Mm. Now, you will obviously comply with the rules. Everyone around the table will comply with the rules on the minimum wage. Now, practically, what is the effect of that? Uh, Employers can rant and rave about it as much as we want. And I've had a lot of phone calls today about it, believe me, um, from people who just were taken by surprise. But sometimes we overdo it, don't we? Because... People say, oh, well, it's going to cost this many jobs, or it's going to mean we're going to put the prices up by this much. But sometimes there's a, a, another another thing that happens, and that is the economy gets that money injected into it, and people can afford to buy motor vehicles again or spend it. Well,
2: the money's, the money's just,
0: just being redistributed, isn't it? Yes. I mean, the money is not going to disappear.
2: There's no wealth being created by increasing the national energy wage. It's just moving it around the economy. And there's some good positive things. You know, more people will be able to buy used cars because people have more money in their pocket. So I'm not arguing necessarily against that. It's more a point of principle. And do we want an economy where, effectively, if you then increase differentials, the government is basically setting wages? I mean, they might as well go the whole hog and set the price of cornflakes. Uh,
0: You're absolutely right. And the, the other point that is true out of the £11.44 an hour uh, it is well above taxable income so by increasing it every hour you're going to be giving the government yeah, 30, yeah. One, uh, 30% now, yeah, 30% yeah. of that number, because yeah. that's mm-hmm. the contribution in terms of uh, tax and NI now. So 30% of that is going to the government. So uh, Is it any wonder when you walk into Sainsbury's that we don't have checkout people now, we
2: have automated yes. uh, scanners, and, the, and there was a direct link,
0: mm, Yes, there, mm-hmm. actually, I suspect. Without, a without uh, obviously the minimum wage is reality, but there, there's no one's ever talked about reforming it in any way without looking at the headlines. One reform could be that you, whereas you have at the younger end apprentices that aren't paid the minimum wage because they don't know as much and you're teaching them, at the older end older workers coming back into the workforce maybe should be given the option. Uh, the employer should be given the option whether they would get a different level of wage because they may have a pension for example Mm. Uh, I know in my own business I employ someone who has the state pension um, and she's a very very good member of staff but should she be paid at the same level of minimum wage I don't know I pose that as a question
1: yeah I, I, I think that's a great idea I mean one of the things I think when minimum wage first came in it did affect a lot of those jobs and I think they probably were retired people, like your mm. pot washers in the pub, yes. you know, and you you couldn't afford yeah. now to actually pay them minimum wage and do yeah. that, and actually, the point of them working was as much about having a purpose, getting out and seeing people and all of that kind of thing, not just actually mm. earning a minimum wage. And it, and setting, setting the wages, they're actually setting the hourly rate, mm. you know, because you, you sort of get hit, a manufacturer can be hit twice because we want people to work less hours, but pay them a high hourly rate, yeah. so they get getting the same pay.
0: Yeah. In my, in my example, and, the lady you know, I, paid minimum wage, but it's a differential yes. anyway, yeah, 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 still yeah, a differential. Yeah, yeah. Carl, let's move from that lady to pensions in general. There was some reform on pension. Now, I, I'm going to familiarise myself with the lingo. Um, first of all, there's the idea
3: of a one-pot pension. Can we give, yeah. me, a, give me a simple guide to what that means? So my understanding uh, of it that I I got from earlier this afternoon is most employers all employers um, will have auto enrollment schemes for members of their staff and it's normally the employer that chooses that scheme. We will have a a certain solution and, and most businesses will have their own solution and when a new employee joins they will be auto enrolled into that solution. Now the downside of that is with people not staying in employment as long or job hopping, as you may uh, want to call it, people then uh, build up lots of tiny little pension pots, which is a nightmare because people lose them. They lose track of what they've got. Economies of scale means you don't really get the benefit of building up a large, larger amount of money. So I can understand the government's Reasoning for saying as an employer, if an employee joins you, we can direct the, oh, the, the employee has the choice to say to their employer, send the money to the scheme I've already got rather than that employee going into the uh, scheme that you've got for everyone else. Now, I get that. There are lots and lots of benefits of it. But I then put my hat on as an employer and think, that could be a blooming nightmare. Mm. <laughs> How do you facilitate that in the slightest? And we've got th- about 30 people. Robert's got thousands of people, as he's already said. Do you imagine thousands of people coming and saying, I've got my own pot? How do you facilitate that? And I don't know whether the detail will come out in due course. I don't know whether they just need they've not really put the thought into it. But it could be a nightmare for employers in how do you facilitate that? Maybe not in the early days, but certainly over time as as that momentum builds.
0: And then there were two other uh,
3: little mentions, uh, PPF and dormant funds. Yeah, so the Pension Protection Fund, hopefully not many people know about it. And only those who know about it tend to be the ones who've been disadvantaged by a defined benefit pension scheme that has failed in the past. So, you know, you'd like to think not many people are affected. But the Pension Protection Fund is a is a government and regulatory-backed uh, scheme. There are billions of pounds in assets in there. And what came out of today was that they are looking to, I'll use the word force or look into using monies within that pot to actually invest it more in business startups and that growing sector investing in UK PLC. The same applies for lots of dormant pension funds there has been rumor about this for quite a while now around again there is there are billions and billions of pounds sat in pension funds untouched people who may have long left the country they may have passed away years ago but there's dormant funds doing nothing And because a lot of really sizable pension funds tend to sit at the more uh, risk-averse end of the spectrum, that money's just sat there, not really making money or growing. Whereas if that money can be deployed into UK PLC, into growing companies, growing sectors, uh, then hopefully then it should see greater uh, investment, which you'd like to think has a positive outcome.
2: Robert, can you oh, be- did the Great British ISA get any traction? No. I didn't see anything on that. It was no. mooted well in advance that it was it was very heavily you know, the FTSE one hundred wrote in, I know there were quite a lot of letters from business to try and get a great British ISA. And that fell on deaf ears
3: today. Yeah, nothing uh, the, from the the statements that I've got back this afternoon. No changes to ISA rules whatsoever. Right. Again, there was a few people saying there should be ISA simplification. There should be able mm. to split ISAs, as as we were talking about before between cash and stocks and shares. Uh. Raising the annual allowances. There's lots of things being um, spoken about which would have been brilliant, but sadly, from the north, I've seen so far no change.
0: The, the only thing that was there to um, uh, to encourage people to look at stocks. And shares again was the, the the full privatization of NatWest uh, to, as a popular retail offer, like the British Gas was in the 80s. Now you you run a PLC firm, and I know you deal with a lot of institutions, Robert, and your staff have shares, and and some of uh, some of your suppliers, me included, full disclosure, have shares in Virtue Motors. But um, this idea of popular capitalism can be achieved, uh, uh, shareholding democracy can be reignited through ISIS, can't it?
2: Oh, for sure. And I think at least this is a step in the right direction. I think the country is a lot stronger when it's a property and share-owning democracy, when people have their own house and they've got a stake in the country. And I think those privatisations in the 80s, that tell SID campaign, were absolutely phenomenal, to be honest. So I think that's at least a step in the right direction. I think there are less people now with shares. Maybe ISIS actually, the cash and and share ISA. So I think this is at least a positive start. I just think the Great British ISA was just a, such a no-brainer that it would have cost yeah. them absolutely nothing if they'd have introduced uh, it. And the idea uh, was to get that people investing in Britain.
0: The idea was that people who have savings can put their allowance up to twenty thousand pounds, but that ISA would be invested only in British stocks and shares, and it would be yes. tax-free on the return. Um, Now, um, we've talked about uh, a lot of these things, but one of the things the government wants is to have growth. There's a a quick chart I'll flip up on growth. And it's saying that as a result of these measures, growth will be a bit muted in the next couple of years, but then start to take effect a little bit more in three years' time. And they had things like more devolution and they had more investment zones. And investment zones are areas of the country, there'll be 15 of them, and they'll be limited to 10 years. And companies, maybe like yours, Robert, could have they have a new enterprise, or maybe a new car dealership, or special workshops. Go in there, no business rates, no stamp duty land tax, and some incentives on employers' NI, where you get uh, money off your employment uh, costs. Do you think this kind of incentive is the right way to spend taxpayers' money, Robert? Because I get it, you're a bit sceptical about government intervention like that.
2: Yeah. You get far more economic growth if you simplified the tax system. And Mm -hmm. if you got the overall tax burden for business down, you don't need to go and have special schemes in North Wales. Um, Great for North Wales, but that investment might be diverted from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest. Um, There's there's probably only so much investment to go around. It's probably a little bit gimmicky. I'm always interested which uh, constituencies are in the zones, and that's quite interesting if you actually look at it. Um, So I, I think... We need to get back to fundamentals and all the talk about tax. We never discuss spending.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and spending is still going up, isn't it? It's still going to be 37% of GDP is government spending. Where do you think it should sit, Robert? I'll ask you all this question, f- f- fair warning. How much uh, percentage of all the government's money, of all the country's money, should the government spend on it? Well, not, I think obviously? it's a
2: very simplistic question because it, it depends on what point of the economic cycle you are. The answer is lower.
0: <laughs> the answer is
3: that. <laughs> All right. Good answer. It's sharp. What do you think, uh, Carl? Again, I'm not going to be held on a number, but my view is it depends on what it's on. Going back to my earlier point, I think if it's investing in something that's going to give future value, I think the percentage is irrelevant. I think if it's being spent just to paper over cracks and it's just a cost... Then it needs to be as low as possible,
0: but it also needs to be on the right side of fifty percent. Otherwise, you've got a communist country, almost, don't you? So, yeah. where where would you
1: sit? I, 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 I would. I think again, I don't a number on it. Definitely lower, maybe half as much. Mm. I think what we forget is that sometimes it's just right to tighten your belt. Mm. You mm. know, and and it, it, we can't have the luxuries because we're just not in that situation. And and I think that's what we we we. We don't, we, don't we, want, we want to earn more money and pay less for things, And but we don't question where it's coming from. Mm. And then that's why that number keeps going up.
0: Yeah. Mm. I mean, some people call it austerity. Other people call it looking after the money. Yes. Uh, there we are. Uh, um, finally, the last question, um, and, and that is about welfare. Now, um, I just, the, 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 we're, we're all employers sat around this uh, table and with, with, uh, with Robert, and the government was saying we do need more people in work and there are a lot of people on welfare and some of them are on disability benefits. And the government is basically saying that you're going to be, if you're on those benefits, you're gonna be given the chance to go to special schemes to help you have different types of employment. So If you have to work from home, you could have computer-based employment uh, and so on. And if you don't go through those schemes, after 18 months, the ultimate sanction is you could lose your benefits. Meanwhile, benefits are going up in line with inflation if you're sick Mm -hmm. and so on. So it's it's combining a sort of carrot and stick approach. I throw that open to the to the room. What do you think, Carl? Gosh, it's a
3: uh, it's, it's again. <laughs> it, it's I've got a a, um, a view that probably I'd like to think many people have got when it comes to benefits. And and the one thing that, that I don't think politicians would ever use this type of language. But it's that I think there's a, a complete difference between those who want to try and get off them and those who don't want to get off them and 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 that's where the line is for me i think those who desperately want to get off them should be given all the help in the world and i think there's there's so many um personal factors and emotional factors and and welfare factors that you know we have to be flexible when it comes to benefits and you know you i don't think you can take that away i think the challenge comes from those that don't want to come off those mm. benefits and I think there has to be a carrot and stick approach mm. to those type of people because um, I think the figure that I I had written down was that there are seven million yeah. inactive and people. A mil- and a million vacancies. Yeah seven million active people in the country of working age that could work mm. and, and this measure could put between 300 and 500,000 mm. extra people uh, back into the workforce which is good for the likes of me, probably the same as yourself, Pam and Robert. So I think measures that encourage people back to work is a good thing. I think we just have to be careful in how we do it and don't tire everybody with the same brush because there's always got to be, there's always a personal circumstance as to why, and I think we just have to distinguish between those who those who um, want to.
0: I'll give Pamela the last word. So hold your horses in a moment, Pamela. Go to Robert. I looked at ChatGTP. I used the AI and I, I asked ChatGTP to tell me what the welfare rules were for G7 countries. And I hope it would work with the same as you. I've got my question right. And it told me that we are the only country that has no time limit. All other countries, you have a time limit for how long you're able to have. Work related welfare payments. So uh, I think this sort of combined having a time limit with having encouragement. Uh, do, does Virtue Motors have people uh, who are uh, 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 maybe have disabilities that you employ, Robert?
2: Of course, of course we do. Uh, I think this is a difficult area. And for economic wise, we've got significant immigration. At the same time, we've got significant numbers of people actually not being productive for whatever reason. And, you know, my grandfather was in the Odd Fellows before the welfare state came in, which provide a mutual society for the working class to provide them with things when in need. And I think we probably need to go back to the start of the welfare state and define what need is. And is, you know, there's not clearly and there's an element of people where this is a right and a lifestyle choice. And there's an element where there's a definite need and society should should definitely support those people forever actually, where there's a need. But have we got the balance right? I'm not optimistic that they'll make substantial progress here, actually. All
0: right. Well, Robert, thank you for joining us. Pamela, you get the last word on this and, and generally how you felt the statement was. non
1: um, uh, uh, nonplussed. A bit underwhelmed. Uh, It it had a smidge of looking like a a, a sort of ready for election, but I don't know whether there's enough there if people have sort of turned off to the Conservatives. I don't know whether there's enough there to turn them back on. I don't think there's enough there to make us the the Great Britain that we should be. Um, It needs more. All right. um, than that.
0: Well, you get the last word, as I say. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we'll have another Northern Business Podcast next week. And, of course, in March, we'll see what the full budget is. That was just the curtain raiser, this autumn statement. Now, if you want to join us as a guest on uh, Northern Business Podcast, feel free to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks to my podcast producer, Harry Sinclair, technical operator, Robin Campbell. Join us next time. Never miss an episode. I like, rate and subscribe us on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts.